Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. To that end, sometimes I talk to you about writing, completely unscripted and planned, just off the top of the dome. Sometimes I look at listeners' first pages and give some feedback on how I think they could be made even better or less bad. And sometimes I get other authors onto the show and I have a little chat to them about their writing lives, about making stories, about publishing, about literature, about life, about being a human being who sometimes puts words in a certain order and and gets paid for it. What a weird, amazing, incredible, uh, lucky, bizarre, occasionally stressful and uh, interesting life it is. So today's episode is me chatting to the author Joanne Harris. Um, I wanted to talk to her for quite some time. She's really active on Twitter, giving out advice for writers uh, every, every day mostly uh actually you know uh, occasionally some you know you're somebody who isn't a writer or sometimes writers who are trying to be modest and self-effacing but kind of attacking all writers simultaneously will kind of talk about you know this idea writers seem strangely keen to give out advice as if it's somehow an act of um it's somehow an act of arrogance to give out advice but i think it's it's quite a lonely business being a writer and um, I always think it's hugely generous of writers to share their thoughts and ideas about what it means to be a writer. No one's telling other people how to do their job or the one right way. What we're doing and what Joanne does so well is share her experience, reflect on it in an often very entertaining, uh, self-effacing or um, really, really interesting way. And also just... Um, just giving help, right? Like, I don't really feel that there's anything to be gained with writers becoming authors and then, you know, rolling up the rope ladder for other people. You know, it's really nice for us to share ideas. And I think actually a lot of the stuff that she shares on Twitter is kind of like less like thou shalts and more like really interesting provocations, thought starters, ways of thinking about writing allow us to completely come up with different ideas if we want although I tend to you know I I, I think most of the time I I think yeah that's spot on um really a really really generous uh writer who aside from being a hugely successful author with lots of people who love her work is also very active within the writing community I think that's the point I was sort of stumbling towards um and so that's one of the that's one of the reasons I wanted to get her on because she's a fantastic author but also she's been really sort of generous and engaged with engaging with other writers and talking about writing so things just came together when suddenly her and garth nicks were going to be doing a gig in norwich i went to see it and then afterwards i dropped her a line and said would you uh, be on the podcast and she said yes so this is going to be that chat um she's written loads of books across like we talk about this, but across a diversity of genres as well. And I think she, you know, makes a, a good point, which is that those, it, it, you know, it's only a sort of like an astounding or unusual thing if you have in your head a set of hard genre boundaries to begin with. And I don't think that's quite how she sees her own work. These things are all sort of emanating from the same source and they're all linked together in interesting ways. Um, 
and I think that's a little bit how I see genre as well. Although I, I imagine myself as being sort of unbound by the strictures of genre, but really there is a, there is a part of me that always wants to st- like stick a wizard in it. Really, you know, like any story, I just kind of think, what if this, what if this person had tentacles coming out of their face? You know, I I I don't pretend that I personally have figured out any grand thematic reason to do that i just it's partly a foot probably habit energy if i'm being honest and just sometimes because i think it's cool and sometimes i think it's safe and also because my experience of the world is quite weird um but this is a i I really enjoyed this chat i i i can't say i'm surprised that i enjoyed it uh but it was really really good fun and we talk about everything from you know how she got started her uh her experience of being a best-selling author and suddenly rising to global prominence we talk about writing fantasy we talk about norse myth been reading her loki books recently in preparation for this and uh really really interested in her sort of like how all these different things that seem like maybe they seem like very different areas in her work all sort of actually start to fit together and make sense as a very as kind of like a a kind of multiverse if you like and we talk about that as well there Joanne Harris multiverse of books so I think there's loads to get out of this whatever kind of writing you do and wherever you are with your writing um, it's really really interesting and it's great I was going to say it's great to hear that a writer who um, has been so successful still experiences doubt. That sounds like I'm engaging in a little bit of schadenfreude there, and I don't mean it like that. I just mean um, it's just good to disabuse ourselves early of the fantasy that we're going to achieve a level of success one day or that we could ever achieve a level of success one day that would completely and forever banish all doubt from our minds that's a self-doubt it's it seems to me is an ongoing process and success can often usher in doubt rather than chase it away and it, it seems actually um with a few authors now looking back through the archives that i've spoken to um their biggest moments of self-doubt come after a big success and their biggest moments of liberation and taking back their sovereignty as an author and engaging with that idea of author being the kind of root of authority. You know, this thing of like, this is my story and you're welcome to come and read it, but I'm going to tell it how I like because this is my world and this is where I get to play. Um, Often comes after (laughs) after a bit of you know, a moment of struggle or a time of doubt or when sales have fallen away or when they think that they're not really an author anymore is when they're most free and most confident. And you'll hear it's a great it's a great story and it's it's, it's really interesting uh, talking to Joanne. So I'm, I, I shan't enthuse any more except to say if you'd like to, uh, if you haven't read one of her novels or even if you have and you'd um, like to check them out, I've put some links in the show notes of today's episode so you can click through one of them and uh, pick up one of her novels I've, I've sort of picked out because there's 
quite a range so i've tried to like hit a few of the ones that we talk about in today's episode um but if you click the show notes to today's episode you can uh pick one up for yourself and check it out greater informed by uh by having um heard her discuss her work i've also uh put, put a couple of links to my books the honors and the ice house um after christmas in the in, in february they're both coming out in paperback editions um, and the originals won't be available anymore. So if you want a beautiful kind of blue hardback of the Ice House or the lovely red uh, big paperback version of the Honours, they're both sort of fantasy adventures, but with a gothic twist is how I would put it, uh, then then you can you can click through there as well. They would make... I was going to say excellent Christmas presents, but I'd go further and say almost heartbreakingly perfect Christmas presents. And, and, and in fact, The Honours is a Christmas book. It begins and ends at Christmas. And uh, I think it's Chris, a Christmas book in the way that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. So and it's in and it's in red and green. So I don't think there's anything more likely to make your uh, loved ones double over in uh, reverent and grateful tears than uh, picking it up um, or you know getting books by any of the authors I've had on the show actually if you listen to those episodes I'm sure that you can find loads of great um, gift ideas for people you love so we, we, we should buy each other books more not even uh, just when it's seasonally mandated because um, books are a real wonderful thing right that's uh, me done talking I hope you enjoy this chat between me and the author Joanne Harris. Awesome. Um, and I really, oh, I, and I really enjoyed your um, your uh, Norwich event with Garth. Actually, he was really, oh, really right. good. Oh, you were there? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It was actually, really, wasn't it, was it? It was a bit of a last minute thing, but it was really nice. And um, yeah, it was fun. I, I quite like doing events with other people, quite apart from the fact that it means that it's a slightly different audience. I, I thought um, it's just it's nice having questions and hearing them uh, hearing sort of like more than one response to them because like it often and, I, and it was nice how the two of you were sort of saying things that um, you're kind of sparking off each other you know one of you brings something up in response to something and the other would kind of like take that and run with it and I thought it was really really interesting and I um you know, like actually, it was. I found it really inspiring. Not to, I, I, I don't mean to sound surprised, but I suppose I've been to a lot of book events and I've enjoyed them all. But I suppose I haven't been for a, a little while because I've got a three-year-old and so <laughs> I don't get yeah, out much. I know and how so, it feels. yeah. And I, I just went out and I was like, oh, I came away feeling really sort of glowing with like, oh yeah, stories are stories are awesome, aren't they? Like, <laughs> this is great. It's made me feel really happy. I just was like, so thank you. Because I was like, oh, yeah, God, writing and stories and isn't the world just felt like a slightly lovelier place. Well, that's nice to hear. I certainly enjoyed it. And I know Garth did, too. I guess it's quite nice to be with another writer when you're doing these things, because we're all quite curious about each other's process and we're all sometimes quite different. Yeah, well, you spend we spend so we spend so much time. Essentially, well, in your case, in a, you know, in the in the in the shed. Yeah, and it's, uh, I don't think you always sort of 
I don't think writers always realise when they start off. I certainly didn't that how much of my career would essentially be me locking myself in a service elevator. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think, you know, you, you don't kind of know that that's going to happen when you sign up for it. And you kind of assume that there's going to be something slightly different to either being alone and working or being surrounded by hundreds of people and working. Um, there is no sort of middle ground here and it, it can be quite quite odd really it, it's and you don't get to meet as many other writers as you think you're going to because when you do meet them they're also surrounded by hundreds of people and they're working and so it, it's it's quite rare to actually get the chance to to talk to somebody else about their process and what they think about stories and 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 this kind of thing it, it doesn't often happen because you meet other writers at festivals and inevitably they're working and also you're working and you might get to have a quick cup of tea with them in the green room or you might not. I, I, I think, I don't know, like I, I've, my background has been in doing performance poetry and stand up. And in that world, you get in venues like the equivalent of like a green room. Right. And so you yeah. you naturally are always have a backstage time every time you go out, you say hello it's like this little sort of like exploded brigadoon that kind of like this village that reforms <laughs> all around the country. And after a while, you do feel a bit like you're in this lovely, with, with actually maybe some of the bad points of living in a village with the kind of parish notice board where no one can sneeze without it, the, the gossip being around. But mainly actually very supportive, lovely. You see the same people over and over again all over the UK. And you do get to chat. And there is... I don't mean to make the writing world sound unfriendly. It's just the structure of it. You don't get that same water cooler, do you? Well, not not always. It does depend on the kind of festival. Some festivals are much more amenable to this sort of thing than others. But it is a bit of a travelling circus. Um, everybody is always on their way to somewhere else. Unless it's a foreign festival, in which case you, you quite often do get a week to hang around in some far distant location with with other writers but most of the time you're you're right it's it's not it's not quite as 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 your experience is what what's the first sto story you can remember telling oh i i remember being asked at school to write a story from the point of view of an animal i think i was probably about 7 um and i wrote a story from the um uh, from the point of view of a crayfish and it was quite peculiar really i was i was writing about fishermen what, um, ma what made you and, choose and a crayfish a kind of, well i thought the crayfish could be a kind of trickster character who was always escaping oh. um, it was not a typical kind of story everybody else wrote about lions and tigers and things that sounds awesome I, I love i love that <laughs> immediately you went straight to the trickster as well that's <laughs> I thought it would be quite funny to have the crayfish keeping coming up behind the fishermen and pinching them and then disappearing. <laughs> and did you always... I speak to writers and they often have sort of different relationships with how much they knew that writing and stories was something that was going to be an important part of their life. Um, was that... Were, were stories always there? Or what was your relationship to stories and writing and books as you were growing up? Oh, I, I was involved in stories from a very early age. I was lucky to have two sets of grandparents who had lots of stories to tell. And my parents were academics and their house was full of books. And 
although they didn't have vast amounts of money, there was money to spend on books. And there was also a library where I was allowed to go when I was seven. And I was allowed to be a member of this library as long as I didn't get anything unsuitable out there. And so my Saturdays were spent sitting in the library, reading all the unsuitable stuff <laughs> um, and then choosing something that would not be vetted by the librarian when I tried to leave. Um, but yes, I mean, I was always reading or telling stories. I was telling stories before I could read because I found reading quite hard at first. And uh, I know that I was telling stories before that. Uh, what, 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 kind of, what kind of things were you telling stories about? Oh, sort of adventure stories, I suppose, the kind of thing that, that small children do. They, they were generally funny adventure stories of one sort or another. And um, I remember just when I'd first learnt to read um, and I was finding it difficult and I used to read in bed and my mother would tell me not to read in bed and so I would, I would ask her if I was allowed to tell stories instead of reading. So that must have been very early on. So it was always kind of a part of my life and I was always pretending something or other. The whole of my childhood was spent pretending to be somebody else or somewhere else. Do, do you were there any stories or any books at the around that time that were just like any of them that like really hit you? Like any ones that you were like, oh, oh, this is there's this is the thing. You know, this is the juice. This is the amazing thing. Can you remember any anything that particularly had an impact on you? Well, very early, I liked Enid Blyton, as a lot of kids did. And I think part of what I liked about that was that they were stories of friendship groups and kids who went off and have adventures. Um, and I was also a fan of, of a French series because most of my childhood books were in French, um, a superhero series called Fantomette, which was about this this girl who is um, who is an ordinary schoolgirl by day, but who is a masked Avenger mm. in, in in her free time, basically. And I read all these books, these little these little pink books. There were about a hundred of them. And my, my French grandfather always used to give me one for my birthday. So I, I had this massive collection of Fontaine books. Um, and I used to make up adventures about these people that I, I'd already read about. And so I, I was kind of writing fan fiction in my head before that word was, was a word. Yeah, I, I guess like... <laughs> It's it's funny that I, I I'm really lucky to have talked to lots of people on the show for whom fan fiction isn't this sort of <laughs> shameful activity, but who recognise that the, <laughs> the line between um, fiction and fa fan fiction, original fiction, is 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 very very blurry indeed. Right, that a lot of the stuff we write that 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 is. And, 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 you know, people write stuff nodding towards the classics and they're acclaimed as kind of like literary masterpieces. And, and, and that's just that's fan fiction, right? Well, I think, yes, it is fan fiction in a lot of ways. And uh, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with writing fan fiction. And, and people are doing it all the time. Fan fiction is being published all the time. All these these Poirot books that that are not written by Agatha Christie are basically fan fiction. I wrote a Doctor Who book, which was was clearly fan fiction. I mean, it was accepted fan fiction. It was part of canon, but that's what it was. I think, you know, playing with existing worlds and existing characters is is tremendous fun and perfectly legitimate and, and can be a great end in itself. Or it can be a kind of sandbox for writers who haven't quite gained enough confidence to to create their own worlds and their own characters and and. And they they just like playing with other people's and and doing the voices. It's 
it, it's to me it's it's a very valuable part of being a writer can can you talk about how when when you sorry i'm just i don't want to i don't want to say like when you sort of I don't want to say when you graduated to writing sort of novels that were published because it, it sounds it sounds like I'm being sort of I'm I'm being uh, uh, somehow demeaning of the work beforehand. I don't mean <laughs> it like that. But can you did I mean did did anything change when you actually produced like a a prop a, pr- a proper in extreme bunny quotes uh, novel? You know, was it something you've been working on for a, a while? Did you have run-ups beforehand uh, or was it your first attempt at a full-length novel? It wasn't my first attempt, no. Um, but my, my first attempt was uh, was a very long um, sort of children's YA crossover novel, except that that term didn't exist and that concept wasn't in existence in publishing at the time, called Witchlight. And it eventually became Moonmarks, actually. I revisited that world and those characters. Um, but I I was very naive. I had no idea how to approach agents or publishers. I had no idea what agents did. Um, it got rejected all down the line because people said that it was too long. It was too complicated. The words were too long. Um, if it was a children's book, the vocabulary base was too difficult. If it was an adult's book, there were too many children characters in there. Um, all the things that were eventually said about Harry Potter and didn't seem to slow that one down. But it was much, much earlier. It wasn't the time for a, a kind of crossover book. And so I, re- I wrote um, instead, I wrote a vampire novel, which, again, was a weird crossover book. It was supposed to be part genre and part literary. And it was basically a kind of Mary Shelley pastiche at the time, I was doing other people's voices. I didn't really have a voice of my own. And, and when that book eventually made it into print, yeah, I was I was absolutely thrilled to bits that it was out. But, you know, it didn't really change much because it was published as a paperback original. I think there were 2,000 copies printed. It was not what you'd call a great breakthrough success. It was very nice to see it in in shops. Very occasionally I saw it in shops. I used to hang around in our local bookshop in Barnsley and and, and look at the only copy that mm. was there on the shelves and sometimes turn it face out so that you could see the, the front cover um, and wait to see if anybody noticed it or picked it up. And I'm sure I hung around that shop so much that, that the guy who was in charge thought that I was shoplifting books, mm. but... He kept looking at me in a funny way, but I assumed that it was because he'd, he'd <laughs> recognised me somehow, and I felt even more happy about it all. But no, it was a very long time before there was any kind of change of any sort, and I didn't give up my my teaching job, which was a good thing because you know everybody needs to eat. Uh, but it took me another another ten years and another three books to be able to to actually think of it as something that I could do full time, and for me to find a voice that was my own rather than pastiches of other people's can can we drill down into that idea of voice a little bit because it's it's something that i hear lots of people talk about and i I feel like i understand what people mean when they say it and often when i've heard agents talking they'll say oh you know like something you say what do you look for in a in a book and they go like a strong a strong voice and i would Mm -hmm. i would really I, i guess i often sort of like agree with that and I don't often reflect on what I mean by that and don't often question what other people might mean because it might not be the same thing. I was wondering, what, when you start to find your voice, what did that mean for you? 
Well, I think it's a little bit like being an actor, really. Um, at the time, I was I was very good at doing other people's voices. I think a whole childhood brought up reading things, writing fan fiction, copying other people's writing had made me quite good and quite versatile at, at doing other people's voices. But I didn't really know what I sounded like because I'd never tried to sound just like me. I'd always tried to copy somebody else. And I think for me, finding my voice was a kind of coming of age. Um, it was a bit like an actor just going, OK, I'm not going to play any characters now. I'm just going to do me and see if people like me. Um, and it took me a long time to do that. Some people do it naturally from the start. My daughter writes and and... Even when she was 11 or 12, she had a, a strong voice when she wrote and it sounded like her. With me, the challenge was to try not to sound like other people anymore. And, and I think I did that without thinking about it too much. I think just with the book that I was writing, which was Chocolat, it just it just came out differently. I just didn't feel that I needed to copy anybody else. And actually, there was nobody else writing that kind of thing at the time. So there was nobody else to copy. Um, and it just ended up sounding more grown up, more like me, more like the person that that I, I, I could become rather than all the people that I'd read in the past that I was trying to emulate. That's fast. So you're kind of saying that's really, really interesting because you're kind of <laughs> it, 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 it sounds like you're sort of almost saying to correct me if I'm wrong, but that uh, to find your voice one one you didn't sit down and go right now I'm going to resolutely write in my own voice, that it was a, almost like a... <laughs> it was almost like you just sort of relaxed into it and it, it was a sort of almost a spontaneous thing. But also, secondly, it sounds like when you're copying other voices or when you're doing these kind of ventriloquism acts, um, that, that that takes a lot of skill. Let's not, let's not uh, play that down because you have to be very attentive to cadence and tone and all these different things. But the writing in your own voice, it, you said it didn't sound like anything else, anything else that was out there. It it sounds like you almost had to kind of like give yourself permission to commit a category error, to, to write something that didn't feel huh. like a novel in lots of ways, right? Nothing you'd encountered. Yeah, it was a bit like that. It was. Um, at the time, I'd kind of relaxed into the the belief that I wasn't going to be published anymore. And I had been told so many times that what I was writing was was all wrong and it wasn't in a proper genre and and that there were all these things wrong with it. And I thought, you know what, I don't have to fix all this stuff. I don't have to be this person. I've got a job. I've got a pension. Um, I've had two books published already. I've done that. I don't actually need anything from anybody. And so I can just get whatever pleasure I get from writing. And you know what, if I never have another book published, that won't be the end of the world. And and so I wrote Chocolat almost like automatic writing. It was I just I just allowed whatever was in there to just come out and it came out the way it did. And and oh, I was convinced that it would never sell, that nobody would ever publish it because it was absolutely the opposite of what I'd been told to do. That's so that it that sort of chimes so strongly with so many of the so many experiences I've heard from other authors when I was talking to um, Victoria Schwab and she was talking about how you know how putting a second novel out and then feeling like oh no one really I guess no one really likes particularly what I, I'm doing that's fine I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna write this thing that's almost 
almost like the kind of like email that you type to your boss when you've decided finally to quit your job and you don't care anymore and you're going to tell the world exactly what you think um and there's a kind it sounds like for you there was a kind of freedom in going well there's not really anyone to disappoint because you're not going to like it anyway I'll just write exactly what I want exactly that's what I thought and and it's it's very much like that for me I, I just reached a point where I thought you know what I'm not going to be able to please everybody and if I don't please myself what's the point doing this and so I just yeah I, I just approached it in a completely different way I didn't have a deadline I didn't even have a publisher and so there was no pressure and there was nobody to tell me that I needed to write in a specific genre or that I had to think about a certain public. None of that really mattered. I just I just wrote it. Um, and sometimes the, the phrases would just come out and I would think, what the hell does that even mean? But I would just let it happen because there was something going on. It was almost like like kind of feeling my way into a piece of music. So. Uh, what the, I think something that I want to ask, and I, you know, I'll, I'll move on to to your other books in a second, because I know you have talked about this a lot. But it, <laughs> it, what does it then feel like when you just sort of kind of close your eyes, essentially, and 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 just you know trust yourself to this kind of high wire act of I'm going to write and <laughs> and really just like believe in the and I, I understand obviously there was editing and you did sometimes go back and have second thoughts about a line, I'm sure, but. What happens when you kind of go, okay, this is me. I'm just going to write this just for me. And then apparently just vast armies of people go, oh, this is me too. I love this. How does, how, how did, how, how did that feel? Because that seems to me at once something that might be very validating. And at the same time, something that could, you know, have implications down the line. And I just wondered if you could reflect on that a little bit. Well, I was very surprised initially. I really did think that it would just be for me, um, and and then I got I got a publishing deal. I got um, I got a film option, and people started to write to me and to say how much this had chimed with them. And I mean, to me, it was it was increasingly incomprehensible that people all the way across the world could see something in this little story that I'd written, um, that I'd written in four months without any expectation of success. And I just felt, I mean, in a sense, I got the most massive attack of imposter syndrome because I thought, okay, it's obviously an accident. I've just lucked out and done something by accident, like like chucking six pots of paint at a canvas and coming up with, with something that makes sense. I'll never do it again. It's it's because I don't know how I did it. Um, and so for, for quite a long time, I was quite anxious about about what would happen if I tried to do it again. And of course, everybody wanted me to. And so I told my publishers I would never follow up on that book and I would never write about those characters again and what I would do next would be completely different. That is so... It's so interesting that, that basically the most... I, I suppose what a lot of people sort of uh, would naively think is the most validating thing ever i wrote a thing i really gave my heart to it but i didn't i didn't punish myself doing it i didn't angst about it i just wrote it for me it was it was re it was just loved it connected with so many people and you say that your one of the feelings you got from that was was anxiety and feeling slightly uh, it, you know i suppose like a co combination between george's 
Marvelous Medicine or Sparky's Magic Piano, that there's this thing that just came down and touched <laughs> you once and then, and now everyone's like, do it again. And you're like, oh, you do, uh, <laughs> what? Why, why do you? Well, yes, it was a bit like that. I mean, it was wonderful in many ways and it was it was humbling and touching and, and it was all the things you would hope for, but it was also a massive spotlight and a massive sense of expectation. And I've never been great at living up to people's expectations or indeed acknowledging that they should have any. And so I, I just told my publishers, the next thing you get will be very different. And it was. It was a book called Five Quarters of the Orange, um, which they just looked at with horror and said, we can't publish this now. It's so different. You will have to write something else. And so I did. I wrote something that I felt bridged the gap a bit, uh, which was less dark, less challenging. But in a sense, I was I was preparing them for the unexpected because I, the, the thing my publishers have always always had the problem they've always had with me is that they never quite knew what I was going to do next and they've, they've made it into a positive bless them but you know I, I think they would have loved it if I just sat down and written chocolat two three four and I had had a chocolat book every year and I wouldn't have been able to do that and it would have been awful um and so I didn't could you you I mean you sound <laughs> as you're talking about it um s slightly slightly delighted may, may may I even suggest that there's something <laughs> of the um of the of the crayfish in you there because um <laughs> you, you 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 quite like yeah, kind of like uh, appearing behind your um your publishers and, and and tweaking them on the bottom and then disappearing again by the sounds of it like that that's something you you quite enjoy um Despite the, I, I totally believe you about the sort of like slight anxiety and the pressure of it as well. But that there's this element of like going, okay, well, whatever you think I'm going to do next time, maybe I'd like to do something a bit different. And there's a it sounds like that you quite enjoy being able to switch up the way that you approach stories. Well, what I like to do is to 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 not stay in the box. I think the the fear that I'd always had. Um, was that I would be put into some sort of category and I wouldn't be allowed to leave it and I wouldn't be allowed to take risks because risks are obviously financially risky for a publisher and professionally risky for an author. But I've always thought that actually what drove what I did was always the sense of, of risk. And I, I just feel that if I write something and I'm absolutely certain of it and there is no risk at all, then it's probably not worth writing. Because that tightrope is, is scary, but it's also the thing that, the dynamic thing that drives what I do. And if I'm not doing something that I've not done before, that's not a little bit new, then I do wonder whether I'm just allowing myself to be complacent and staying in the same space. And, and I've always felt that if I did stay in the same space, then something in me would die. And so I've, I've pushed the limits of what I've done and I've tried different things and to be fair, my readership has been very good about this. Um, some people have, have decided that they only want chocolate books, which is fine. But I've also written short stories and fantasy and thrillers and psychological thrillers. And, and they have their audience, too. And there's also an overarching audience that will just actually read anything that I write, whether they, they think they're going to like it or not, whether they're used to reading that genre or not, because they're curious about what I will do next. And I think I'm very lucky to have that kind of loyalty in my readership. 
Not everybody does. And it has allowed me to take a lot more chances. And also, of course, it has given me permission to go back to the world of chocolat without feeling that the expectations of the public will just trap me there forever. Can you, I just wanted, wondered if you could reflect on, I suppose, what some people might see as an apparent contradiction, which is this idea of finding your voice, you know, that you find your voice in a, in a certain novel, and yet there is such like incredible diversity across your books in terms of tone, in terms of genre. Um, how, how, how do you know what your voice is when in each book you might be channeling different characters, you might be in different worlds, the tone and voice of the world or novel or the genre might be completely different. Um, can you, can you t maybe reflect on how, how you identify the you-ness in all those different things? It's a very difficult question and it's an interesting point. I think in some ways my answer isn't very helpful in that it's mostly I just know. But I think it's a little bit like, it's a bit like singing. You can sing in a number of different registers and a number of different styles, but underneath those things there is still something which makes that voice yours and makes that voice recognisable. So you can sing folk or you can sing rock, but there is still something that will identify your voice behind there. It's something about the the intonation, perhaps, um, the way you breathe. There is something underlying those things. And you can you can do things with your voice if you have the skill, but you can't make your voice into somebody else's. And that's the closest I can get, really, as an analogy. Um I can do other people's voices now, but I generally don't. Instead, I do the voices of characters that I have created. And behind all those characters, there is a layer of something which comes from me. And that's that underpinning tonal quality, I suppose, which makes those characters something to do with me and makes their voices connect with my voice. Um, so in a, a sense, again, it's a bit like acting. You bring part of yourself to a role if you're going to do it properly if you're going to make people believe that you are that person i think there are a lot of connections between method acting and writing books actually i think uh, stanislavski's book uh, an actor prepares could quite easily have been called a writer prepares because it's all about getting to know your characters and getting to feel what they feel and using what you have felt in the past to make a connection with the characters that you're you're guiding through this story. Do you do you feel that that is that is that intuitive uh, way of uh, writing? Um, is that is that a technique that you still use now? Are you getting like? Do you get a sense of a world and then feel your way through, or do you use very different approaches depending on the book? No, I think under, under it all, I still do use that intuitive approach. All books are different, of course, and and sometimes the entry point is slightly different, and, and very often the process of getting to the heart of the story is is different. But yes, much of it is intuitive, much of it is organic, um, much of it is a bit risky because very often I I don't always know exactly what's going to happen. 
I don't quite know how a story is going to end. Usually I have a sort of vague idea of where I'm going, but it's it's not set in stone. Um, and I like it that way because risky though it may be and, and therefore slightly stressful, it also means that I'm capable of surprising myself, which means that I would think by and large I'm also likely to surprise the reader. And when you're writing a book which is based on surprises and revelations and twists and turns, that's really important not to overthink the process to the point at which you are going to rob the reader of the surprise. Because readers have read lots of stories as well. And so if you know where the story is going, chances are they can work ahead of you and and make some fairly reasonable deductions and reach the same conclusion as you as well whereas if you're kind of sounds like you like to write a little bit like uh, a little bit like a kind of like <laughs> coachman kind of like you're 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 a little bit ahead of them you're right you know steering the horses you can, you're looking at the road and telling them a story and they're in the back but um you can only see a small distance ahead of them through the rain and you don't know what might be up ahead you've got an idea of where you're going but um it, 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 you know, it's, it sounds like you'd like to sort of be riding alongside them a little bit. And uh, so you're kind of in it together. I do think so. Yes, I like that idea. I like the idea that the journey is not something that I've traveled before, which means that the things that surprise me will surprise everybody. Hopefully, anyway, if it works, that's that's how it's supposed to be. I mean, obviously, people do sometimes guess things ahead, but. I do find that particularly with my thrillers, uh, people have come back to say, yes, you, you genuinely surprised me there. And I had to go back to see if you'd cheated and no, you hadn't. And, and that was good. And of course, you also get the people who who feel a bit offended that they were surprised um, because they kind of feel that they should have seen it coming and they didn't. Um, and that, too, is a kind of win in some ways. Yeah, I, I've actually... I, I can't remember who I was listening to who said that like their their ideal sort of model for a book is the reader the reader gets to a a twist a revelation and hurls the book out the window in fury and then immediately <laughs> has to dive after it to see what happens next. I'm pretty sure that's happened a couple of times. <laughs> can can you talk I would wonder if we could talk a little bit about um fantasy and particularly your um Loki books um because for the, I, 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 you know, you. It's great that some of your readers are pre- prepared to follow you through genres because often readers on either side of the imaginary <laughs> genre demilitarized zone um, are a little bit wary of um, crossing boundaries. And I wondered if you could reflect a little bit on. Um, I guess I'm going to ask the impossible question: Why you write fantasy? It's not meant to sound like so much of an accusation as that. Um, but like, what uh, what does a fantasy allow you to do? Um, what attracts you to writing fantasy? Well, it's an interesting one because I, I don't really tend to think of genre in the way that booksellers do or publishers do. I just tend to see the story and what the story requires. And sometimes it needs an element of fantasy, an element of outright magic. And sometimes it needs the magic to be more played down and to be more open to interpretation. And sometimes it doesn't need magic at all. But to me, there's a very broad spectrum of fantasy and what it entails. I don't see it as a kind of line in the sand. And a lot of people do. I mean, I was asked on stage by um, by an interviewer who should have known better at some literary festival or other why I chose to dabble in fantasy when I had written 
proper books. What? And it's, it's probably you know, it, it's 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 the closest I've ever been to actually lamping an interviewer. But it's but there is to some people a very broad line there that they don't want to cross. And I find it very interesting because to me fantasy is it is not an irrelevant kind of airy fairyland that you go to when you, you can't be asked to write a proper book. It is to me it's a very profound exploration of of how people articulate things that can't be articulated outside of a fantasy context and when we look at where fantasy comes from uh, when we look at the, the kind of fairy tales and the folklore that has informed all european literature we see how important it is psychologically to be able to disguise your monsters in a way that makes them accessible in terms of writing a story in which monsters can be faced and combated and destroyed. Um, to me, fantasy is the secret language of the human subconscious. It is all about what we fear and what we hope for and and the things that concern us most intimately. And so the idea that, you know, that it's just a bit of fun it is completely alien to me. And it's, in fact, very difficult to write fantasy in a way that you know that actually does articulate these things can can you give can you give like a an example of of how fantasy can kind of take uh, some abstract uh problem or or fear and 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 make it make it flesh make it something that is confrontable well, of course, all the monsters in, in fantasy fiction, and, and by fantasy fiction, I mean anything that has the supernatural in it, all of these are basically explorations of our fear of death, our fear of the unknown. Um, you know, you've got, you've got wonderful monsters in, in, in literature like Grendel, who is, who is clearly a personification of this, this fear and the, the triumph of overcoming Grendel. Is, is just one of the, the great moments in, in, in literature. Um, I mean, I use, it, I use it in different ways. Um, I mean, I have always maintained that Chocolat and, and its, its accompanying books are all fantasy in one sense or another, but the, the fantasy is so much embedded in real life that not everybody spots it and not everybody wants it to be that way. And so it is a metaphor to some people and to some people it's, it's actual magic, which is fine because I've always thought that your know, magic is is a very broad area in literature. We can use it as an element of fantasy, or we can use it to to express other things. And and in in chocolat, I've I've used magic to to express how Vian relates to other people, how how she uses her insights in terms of getting to know other people and getting to know what they need and what they want. Um, and when we look at the magic vocabulary in our language, it's full of words like charm and charisma and glamour and enchantment. And all these things have double meanings. They have the proper fantasy meaning, which is spells and flying broomsticks and big snakes and, and dragons and the rest of it. But it also has um, a meaning which is much closer to the human qualities that that make a person charismatic or charming it's basically about the ability to appear a certain way to other people and to change the way they see you to change the way 
people act around you. Magic is entirely transformative. And as such, this idea of you being able to change the world through certain human qualities is also allied to the idea of changing princes into frogs and all the other standard techniques of of magic in fairy tale. To me, those things are, are, are blended. Um, and in my books, I kind of play around with that, which is which is why I've got away with writing books that tend to find themselves on the shelves next to literary fiction, whereas in fact they're they're all about magic and witches and transformation. Do, do, I wonder if so. I I only bring this up because oddly this incident happened last week, and I I hope I hope you take it as the um, compliment it's meant to be that I thought oh I must I feel like I want to ask Joanne about that, but my daughter was at soft play. And she's three and she's desperately, she loves older children and desperately wants to be able to play with them. And there were some older children running about the soft play. And my daughter tried to initiate a game with them. But she, she went, quick, run, a dragon. And this, and this oh. boy who was about seven turned to her and it, with sort of acid disdain said, dragons aren't real, baby and ran off and wouldn't play with her. <laughs> Unfortunately, she sort of didn't, she didn't, she, she didn't quite take it. She, she almost didn't notice or, or, or just sort of blanked out that he was being a bit, a bit cruel. Um, but I, I wondered if you, I, I thought, why do, is it, do you think that there are some people who seem, like this interviewer that you spoke to, who seem almost threatened by the idea of the supernatural the imaginary the liminal um to the extent that they are you know that it is seen to be something lesser other something that we mustn't let we mustn't let fantasy touch our um, real world concerns what, what do you think it is that makes people feel so um the bulk of uh, 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 the idea of fantasy it's an interesting point um and i think one that one that has multiple strands here it's partly partly a sort of inheritance from the victorian ideal of childhood which felt that children needed to be protected from various truths and the victorians are guilty of the mass extermination of a lot of fairy tales or at least they're morphing into something childish um which they felt that children could could handle whereas in fact fairy tales were originally dark and challenging and written for adults with dark and challenging lives and they were there as a coping mechanism not not as a kind of comfort blanket away from the world um it is partly that it's partly i think a kind of intellectual insecurity which means that some people feel that they will be judged on what they enjoy. And if what they enjoy reading isn't filled with things that they consider to be serious social issues, then it's probably not worthwhile. And it's also, I think, a fundamental lack of understanding of the meaning of metaphor and how it's used. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that all fantasy writing is equally good or equally literary but it's perfectly possible to have really excellent writing in the fantasy medium um and 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 people seem somehow some people seem to be 
reluctant to accept this. They seem to feel that there is a seriousness to literature, which means that fantasy stories, or in fact anything that has too strong a plot, anything that is too entertaining, which doesn't actually make them literally suffer, is is somehow second rate. And, and this is a very frustrating thing within the literary world. Um, but I do think it's mostly born of ignorance and insecurity and just a lack of knowledge of what's out there. I have to bite my tongue sometimes because I do hang around with literary novelists as well as genre novelists. And to hear some of them talking about genre as something that they would never read because they think it's trashy, because they think it's populist. Um, you know, they, they sound phenomenally ignorant to me. And that's nothing to be proud of at all. Can I, I wondered if, because I've spent the last couple of weeks with, um, with Loki and um, been having a really great time. And the other thing, <laughs> I, you know, I, I feel like sometimes as, you know, as a fantasy novelist myself, sometimes I get so sort of bound up in going oh no but it's it's serious and there are big themes and I care about those things really that sometimes I can lose the other side of the coin which is like sometimes like fantasy can just be really fun or cool as well as doing all those other things and and so you know sometimes like the dragon is uh is a kind of metaphor for the ravages of war but it is also a massive dragon and that is interesting and fun on its own terms as well because dragons can do things that a human being can't um i wondered if you could talk a little bit about the the the, the genesis of uh loki and it kind of brings us back in a sort of um oblique way towards fan fiction really um and um and i guess it brings us back to trickster character well i don't guess it literally brings us back to trickster characters as well i because I, I, it feels like you're writing about loki from what we've talked about feel it feels almost actually from what we've talked about almost inevitable that you were going to hit this point right and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you came to um, write it oh it, it, it always was inevitable I was obsessed with mythology as a child and particularly Norse mythology I think there's something especially accessible about those characters and I think to a child it's the humor of it is irresistible and also the fact that that particular group of myths is, is obviously incomplete and there are whole loads of gaps that, that need to be bridged by something and haven't been bridged in most cases. And so from being quite a small child, I was already making up stories about Norse gods and how they got to various places. And Loki is, is particularly interesting because A, he's the catalyst for pretty much everything that happens in Asgard, good or bad. Um, and and also he's he is a character who is essentially mostly portrayed by the people's reactions towards him. He doesn't get to speak very much for himself, except in one epic poem um, called Loka Zena, uh, which is basically a, a story in which after the death of Balder, um, Loki is already pretty much persona non grata and he crashes a party and ritually insults every god and goddess there. And it's a wonderful, wonderful voice. This is this is Loki speaking in his own voice. It's it's uh, this ritual insulting of people was was very much uh, a kind of Icelandic Scandinavian thing. Uh, it was called a flighting, and he just goes off on this tremendous, this excoriating rant. 
and he tells Thor that he's stupid and he's always losing his hammer and and he tells Freya, the goddess of, of love and beauty, that not only did she sleep with her brother, which is bad enough, but that she farts in bed. <laughs> uh, and every time he sort of manages to get the thing which will puncture and deflate these dignified people. Um, and this is the moment at which, you know, everybody decides to get Loki because it's not because he's caused the death of Balder. It's because he's done this. And and. And I wanted to get back to that that character. It seemed to me that nobody had actually written a version of the Norse myths in Loki's voice. It seemed to me that it was a voice that I'd been hearing in my own head for years. And wouldn't it be fun not only to to use that voice, that that voice, which is at the same time incisive and also deeply self-destructive, because everything that Loki does is, is basically likely to culminate in something awful happening to Loki. Um, and to answer some of the questions about him, like, for instance, you know, why on earth would Odin bring him into Asgard, given that Odin knows the future um, and that he knows that Loki is going to bring about the ends of the worlds? Why on earth does he bring him in there in the first place? Where does he bring him from? What does he have on him somehow that that means that that he's going to make him welcome in this this actually quite law abiding community? Why is he bringing this this firebrand in there? Um, and so I wanted to rewrite his story slightly and give it a bit of shape, give him a bit of an origin story. And so I took the myths and I kind of wove them together with something that that hopefully would would give it a bit more of a structure. And I got I got really kind of into the voice. I mean, I'd already written two novels, Rune Marks and Rune Light, where Loki is a main character, but it's not he's not a, a first person narrator. Um, and I realized that I enjoyed writing Loki because, yeah, everybody likes Loki. Loki is, is a lot of fun. And also without Loki, nothing really in those myths would have happened. Asgard would just have kept on going just fine. And, and the end of the world wouldn't have happened and there wouldn't have been Ragnarok. And um, yeah, but he is the catalyst to action. He is, he's the person who makes story happen, which is why everybody likes him, um, even though he is clearly not the kind of person you want to take home to your family. <laughs> I, I really like that idea of um taking i think sometimes when we're looking at stories i, I often people when talking to people who are working on a novel or whatever they see an apparent contradiction or inconsistency like you just mentioned with why why would loki be invited in when when we know what's going to happen when we know this is going to be a uh, a disaster and I, I i also i feel that that's that's there's a little bit of that in um in th white's uh the once and future king where where arthur you know merlin knows what's going to happen and 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 and, and, and tells arthur look just heads up this is what's going to happen but and, yes. and, and part of what we get in the end of those books is the fact that arthur kind of knows but he also loves his best friend and he he loves his wife and he, he, he there's a kind of element of human folly there that makes it really tragic because he knows but he he just he just wants to let it go for one on for one more day or you know there's this sense of something very human in the middle of that and and it sounds like what you kind of embraced in these books in the writing of this is rather than the tendency when I'm working with people working on their novels where they'll they want to flatten down apparent contradictions 
and go, well, I need to rechange the plot so there's not this inconsistency, that you're embracing them and using them as a kind of wellspring for story and going, OK, assuming that is true, why? And, and that sounds like it was a very fertile ground for you to, 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 to ask, why would this apparently stupid, illogical, irrational thing, why does it take place? Well, yes, that, that's kind of what I did think. And I, I created a situation where I think I made it made make sense. Um, obviously, literature is full of tragedies whereby somebody is told what's going to happen and they don't believe it and they try to avert it, but it happens anyway. So I'm kind of riding on that that idea, the idea that, you know, you can fight against fate can you change it? Can you not change it? But I, I also invented a villain um, in in Mimer, who who is not a villain in in the original myths at all, who is just a victim. But um, but he he becomes a kind of um, a kind of villainous character in a sense that he he is even beyond the grave, constantly shaping the future and making prophecies which which are true but which which sound as if they could be messed around with and and they could and and by by doing this of course he makes he 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 puts into into motion the wheels which would and eventually culminate in Ragnarok i mean Ragnarok of course was was the point it was my sticking point always as a child that the fact that these great characters all die at the end and when i wrote rune marks which which was originally a, a long um, a long book called Witchlight, written in a series of school exercise books. Um, I thought, well, my starting point has got to be what happens after Ragnarok, and how can I bring the gods back to life? And and I I ended up writing a story about histories and why histories are not always correct, and how we shape history, and how the people who have access to history and to literacy and to the telling of stories are actually the people who rule the world. And the whole of those books kind of came out of that. And I managed through that that kind of thinking to to recreate a kind of post Ragnarok world where, in fact, the world hadn't been destroyed, nor had the gods. They had just been superseded by another religious belief, which is, in fact, what happened. Um, perhaps Ragnarok was more of a metaphor than anything. It was certainly the end of that culture maybe Ragnarok is a metaphor for the Christianization of, of Scandinavia and so I went from that point onwards and I, I've I've kept on bringing gods to life and killing them off again um, and bringing them back to life because because actually that's what happens with gods if you keep telling their stories they never quite die uh, I, I really like the idea I, I, when I've spoken to a, a few novelists sometimes we alight on this idea that Often when they're writing a novel or a series of novels, they're they're kind of wrestling with a problem that is basically insoluble, you know, like like worrying about, you know, worrying about the people you love, some harm coming to them might be one where you can never design a world in which that won't happen. But through engaging with it in the novel, you might um, make a kind of come to a kind of peace with the idea or at least gain some understanding or some relief and it, it it sounds like it sounds like with 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 these books you you've had a, almost like a similar thing about the the passage of time and the falling of empires and you know stories having to come to an end and char beloved characters 
dying and and what happens after this you know the, these great um cataclysmic confrontations finding ways that people can can kind of live on and their stories can change and the cultural context in which they're understood changes and and, and i guess also I don't know. That's what it feel, feels like to me. Is, that, is there anything you, you felt like when you look at the stories you've written so far? Um, do you feel like that there's any... Have you have you done the kind of like Joanne Harris's favoured themes kind of thing or ever looked at a retrospective on your own <laughs> on your own work? Well, I think I think that if you do look at everything that I've written, there is. I think, quite a similarity between some of these stories. I mean, if we take, for instance, the Gospel of Loki and put it next to Chocolat, and you wouldn't think that they were identical stories by any means, but in fact, in both cases, you've got an outsider, a troublesome outsider, who comes to a fairly orderly and very patriarchal community and sets the cat among the pigeons. And this happens quite frequently in my stories in one way or another. Much of it is about the outsider's role in community, what it's like to be an outsider. Um, both Viana and Loki are both racially outsiders. Loki is even more of an outsider in that, you know, he's, he's not even human. Um, and he is gender fluid enough to be able to become a woman or to be horse or to give birth. And that's bad enough when we're talking about, you know, 8th century Iceland. But, you know, it, it's... It's still a controversial idea now, and I think it's it's, and and Vian, of course, is is somebody who is directly challenging the assumptions of a quite, um, a quite narrow-minded view of the Catholic faith. Again, you've got these people who challenge things, and I do think that the the troublemakers in life tend to be the ones that catalyze stories, and so that there's that. I mean, I, I've always felt that across the whole spectrum of what I write. The same ideas keep coming back, the idea of community and what it's like to belong and not to belong, the idea of perception and how we see the world and how we make the world see us, um, the idea very often of family and what that means. Um, and then there is there is the idea of magic, this this thread of magic that runs through things and what that means to you and, and how it how it affects your life and how we perceive magic, whether we think of magic as something every day, um, whether we've sublimated into, into something else or whether we've disguised it with, with lots of uh, uh, lots of accoutrements to be to be something that contains a fantasy world. But I think to me, all these things are kind of overarching ideas that, that run through absolutely everything that I've written. And the more I write, the more books I write, the more I realize that each one is a kind of piece in a much larger jigsaw puzzle which is expanding these worlds so that they actually touch each other and eventually at some point when my life's work is done if it ever is i will be able to stand back and go this is the complete picture this is what i was aiming for look and people will just go oh that's what it was and they'll they'll see something wow i really i i really i really like the idea of of uh, or, or like it's almost it feels like there's tunnels running between your stories where different characters can move from one world to the other well absolutely i mean at the moment um all my my loki books and my rune marks books and also my novellas like a pocket full of crows and the blue salt road 
And also my book of stories, which is coming out next year, um, are all set in effectively a version of the nine worlds. But I've expanded those worlds because, of course, as we learn more about our environment, we learn more about the worlds. And so it has become less of a nine worlds universe, rather a multiverse in some ways, which is why my my short storybook is called Honeycomb. And I'm kind of playing with the idea of this honeycomb world whereby you can pass from one to another within certain circumstances, which kind of implies that the world of chocolat is also part of the honeycomb world. And the world of Morbury and St. Oswald's and my, my psychological thrillers is also another part of the honeycomb world. Um, and the more I write about this, the more I realize that actually they, they are not a million miles away from each other. And you can kind of determine the echoes that are going on between one and the other. And, and they are kind of occasionally just pinging each other uh, through the ether, which is which is what I kind of enjoy sometimes making little connections. For instance, my my rune books, my Loki books uh, are partly set in a village called Morbury, which is another version of the Morbury village that I, I use at the centre of my, my St. Oswald's books, which are not at all about magic, but... To me, that village is a kind of crossing place where actually there is a kind of liminality to it. Um, and it wouldn't take it wouldn't take much for somebody to be able to pass from one to the other. I like the idea of them. Just the, these are sort of points where where the veil is slightly rubbed thin and these worlds kind of rhyme with each other slightly. That's, that's a lovely <laughs> it's a lovely feeling that the that yeah that the characters they're almost they're almost kind of whispering to each other a little bit when they get to these certain crossing points in your book. Exactly. Yes. I, I was wondering if you could because you have you you give lots of um, advice and thoughts to writers on Twitter, which I've really really enjoyed, and I I, w- I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit on kind of keeping going i i i i suspect you'll sort of resist the idea that um that 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 what you're doing is sort of involves um uh bravery exactly but in terms of facing up to anxiety and expectations of others and stuff i think it it certainly takes a, a a good deal of psychological resilience and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit i know you've reflected on it slightly earlier but um on how you kind of have how you have kept and how you keep going walking into this kind of unknown into this kind of like fog of discovery with your stories because it sounds like you don't quite ever get to kind of like touch a point of absolute certainty where you're like I know what's I know what the next three books are I know exactly what I've got to write each morning it sounds like you're always having to kind of like come up against um some some of the un, un, unknown and i wondered if you could just talk about how yeah. you deal with that as a writer and as a professional who you know uh, in the end there is an expectation that you will produce more stories yes i i guess there is um i try not to think about oh, sorry. things like that too much <laughs> because it's it's not something that i have a lot of control over on the other hand i think that you know given that i've always written because i loved writing and not because of the audience, although the audience is nice. I've not always had one. 
and not because of the money, because the money is is always nice, but I've not always had any. But I've always had this urge to write. And so that is the thing that keeps me going, partly. Um, I think the higher up the ladder you go, the higher the scrutiny and the greater the expectation and the more likely you are to to find people who don't like what you do. And, and, and it's taken me a while to understand this because much of what I do as a writer, and I suspect that other writers are like this, is in a sense a very intimate thing. I mean, obviously it's fiction, obviously it's not all about me, but it is still an intimate connection. And it's hard to cope with people saying, well, this is rubbish, this is just lazy, this has just been done for the money, because you know that you've bled on the page and they have no idea what went through your mind when you were doing something, and yet they still feel, you know, that because they didn't like it, they're entitled to second-guess how you made it. Um, and I think, you know, with the internet and with the, the number of people uh, talking about art of all sorts on the internet, you are much more likely as an artist to come across this kind of thinking than you ever were. And I've come to the conclusion that there's nothing you can do about this and that to react against it in a way that affects your writing is 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 to damage the writing. And so nowadays I just tend to go, you know what, I made this. I made it for you. If you like it, I'll be happy. If you don't like it, you have a right not to like it. Um, I think that it's very difficult and, and probably counterproductive to write with an audience in mind. And I love my readers and I'm very grateful to have them. But I also leave them at the door of the shed when I come in because I can only really please one person at a time. And that person's me. And if I'm not pleased by something, then I don't really believe that anybody else is going to be. And even if they were, it wouldn't feel honest. And so that's that's what I try to do. I try to stay honest and to do the best I can with whatever story I'm dealing with, whatever genre that story happens to be in. And to know that everybody is entitled to their opinion. And that, you know, even if just one person reads it and feels that it has done something, it's changed something in them or taught them something or or made them ask a question that they'd never asked before, then then you have done something magical and good. And this would be my advice to anybody um, first starting off and, and reading their first reviews and getting their first criticism, because it never gets easier accepting these things. And, and sometimes it can it can feel quite brutal, I think, for people who who don't have a large audience and who are just starting out and just putting their head above the parapet and going, is it okay to come out? Yes, it is. It's totally okay. Can, do you have any, I just wondered if, you know, in terms of your, do you, I, 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 I've got like this slightly mischievous uh, uh, tendency to try and um, make people pledge allegiance to either the, um, the plotting or Enhancing in terms of uh, writing styles, but do you have a particular way of working with each book? Do you um, do, are you a big sort of like making notes and planning it out and giving yourself a scaffold? Do you uh, completely uh, sort of ride the nose cone of the rocket and see where it takes you, or um, somewhere in between, or does it change between books? I think I mostly make things up as I go along. I tend to to build the bridge when I get to the bit where there is no bridge. 
And so I know that the, you know there is there is going to be something to cross. There's going to be some kind of trajectory, but I don't always know how it's going to it's going to happen. What the bridge is going to be made of, um, how solid it's going to be. I mean, the great thing with word processing is that actually you can go back and fix things if they didn't quite work, or if you feel that there's a bit of a hole. Um, but no, I, I'm not one of those architectural planners. Uh, for the reasons I've already given it, it doesn't feel like I will surprise myself too much if if I know that there's a safety net, if I know that that I'm actually going somewhere which has which is already trodden ground. I, I'm not I'm not set up to do that kind of thing. In some ways, I wish I were. It would be much simpler. I would be able to tell my publishers when I have finished a book because I would know how long it would take me to write. Um, I wouldn't worry about running out of steam. I, you know, all these things, but. That's the way it goes. That's the way I do things. And I suppose the last thing I wanted to ask is like, how do you see the what? what, what, How do you see the sort of state of um, publishing and stories and the kind of like the territory of 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 novels at the moment? You know, are are there things you're excited about? Are there things that? you have concerns about you know what's what's it what's it what's it like being uh for for writers right now and what do you foresee uh coming up i think it's an interesting time for writers i think in many ways it's it's a time that offers more opportunities to writers than it used to when i first started in the business i think self-publishing has changed a lot um it has opened up opportunities for writers who will not get traditional publishing deals because traditional publishing has reached a point at which it is extremely risk averse and is not really signing up people who are not very commercial writers. I think that's a pity. I think publishing needs to embrace the risk because if you don't take risks, you will not get returns. And I think that, you know, this this calcification of big publishing particularly into what they think makes a bestseller is is probably a mistake and is driving people to self-publishing because they don't feel that traditional publishing has has a future for them. Um, I think the next five years will tell whether traditional publishing gets to change or whether it will get more and more calcified. If it does, self-publishing is still there and is great and there are many exciting things happening there. And I'm glad for the people who who have seen it as a way of getting their their stories out there. Um, I think we're always going to need stories and people are always going to tell stories. What I would like to see much more is people being rewarded for telling stories. And this is this is where I get my unionists hat on and start saying that, you know, from the perspective of somebody on the board of the Society of Authors, I've seen authors incomes go down, plummet in a terrifying way. Whereas everybody else in publishing is is making progress, is earning more, creators are getting less and less and less, and they're being asked to do more and more and more. And it seems to me that you know, some of this has to do with all the stuff that's available for free on the Internet. And some of it has to do with the fact that more and more people are able to make their own stories and make them available. Um, but I do think that because fiction because ideas creative ideas are pretty much our biggest export in this country there is something deeply wrong in the fact that creators are not 
paid in a way that other people are paid. Um, you know, the average author earns considerably less than the minimum wage, something like 11 grand a year. Um, and this is, you know, this is not entirely okay. Publishing should look at this because it, it's all very well to publish a handful of bestsellers ghosted for TV celebrities, but these things don't last. The base of publishing isn't built on things like this. It's built on bread and butter authors, mid-list authors who have a public and who deserve to be able to access it through traditional publishing as well as self-publishing and who, who are entitled to make a living. If other people monetize their work, then their work is worth something and they should be they should be properly paid for it. And I'm not quite sure how we're going to deal with this, but it's it's a problem that I've been talking about on Twitter for some time. Um, and it's high time we looked at creators as people who also have to pay bills and eat and feed their children and pay the rent and all the rest of it, because, you know, we do not live on pixie dust here. And I'm saying this as somebody who is very lucky and, and who who actually does make a living from writing books. But I know so many people who don't and who have nobody to speak up for them. And this, this is one of the reasons that I do. It's funny how sort of in talking about it, we're sometimes um, encouraged to <laughs> to feel to feel like to, 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 to dare to ask to um, to, to be paid a, li a living wage for doing it is somehow an act of incredible entitlement or pretension when everybody mm. else at every sort of check. Well, actually, no, that it, so I, there's certainly some question mark over whether booksellers are being paid a, a living wage. I realise that is still a live question, but um, the idea that, um, that to want to uh, be able to keep a roof over your head and uh, eat is somehow is somehow is almost like it's slightly it's slightly gauche. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is this is basically a throwback from a very elitist line of thinking which felt that you could only be pure as an artist if you weren't paid and you could only live as a person if you had independent means which meant that artists had to be rich, independently wealthy, otherwise they weren't allowed to create at all. And if we have a look at the the history of artists, this idea of the romanticism of artists starving in garrets, but also the purity of gentlemen and ladies who clearly had more refined taste than ordinary people and therefore didn't have to care about money. That was what made good art. You know, I think it's time we kind of jettisoned this bullshit now. We've we've grown past it, thank goodness. And, and it's the survivorship bias as well, because, of course, the only examples of art that where people were sort of struggling with money and 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 then produced good art that we see are the ones who who made it we don't see all the people who um because of not having the bottom of their maslow's hierarchy of needs pyramid um fulfilled just didn't finish their books or were ill or whatever because all of that potential art has been wiped out so we only ever Absolutely. see the, the people who survived and then imagine that they are the um rule and not the exception Exactly. And all the people who never felt that they were permitted to make art at all because they were from the wrong part of society. All of those people also deserve to have voices and and deserve to to make a living if their if their voice wants to be heard. You know, it, it's I think, you know, this this romantic ideal of 
of the the, the, the the starving poet is is really something again that we can blame the Victorians for. Um, I think the business of of writing and creating art is is really not about suffering. It is about making joy. And imagine how much more joy some of those people like Van Gogh and Keats would have would have made if they, if they hadn't actually died um, prematurely and in poverty. Imagine what they could have been capable of in later life. Thank you so much for um, talking to me today, Joanne. I really, really appreciate it. It's been um, edifying it's been and really, pleasure. really fun. If people want to um, find you online, what is the... Um, best way that they can do that well my website is joanne-harris.co.uk and you can find me there or you can find me on twitter which is my second home where i'm joanne chocolat fantastic i'll put links to um both those uh, in the show notes and on my website as, as, as well as links to uh, joanne's books as well um so you can go and uh, check those out um everybody listening thank you so much for listening in today i hope you've enjoyed this discussion and i hope you have a wonderful week of writing